Our sermon this morning is from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Go ahead and turn to 2 Timothy 4 in your Bibles if you have them. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 936, so go ahead and, and turn there. We've been working through the book of 2 Timothy uh, for a couple of months now. We're getting close. This is the, it's, it's this week and next week. We're done with 2 Timothy as of, uh, as of next week. Then we're going to transition back into the Gospel of Luke for probably a month or two. Um, and, and actually uh, stay with the Gospel of Luke up until uh, Advent of this year. Uh, during the season of Advent, we're going to work through uh, the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, like leading up to the birth of Christ. But, but specifically, we're going to focus on, uh, there's, a, there's a handful of females that are mentioned in the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. So we want to take a look at them and then kind of uh, cross-reference them uh, back to their passages in the Old Testament. So looking at Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba and, and Mary. And kind of consider, considering why those women were chosen to be included in the, in the genealogies. M- most genealogies in the ancient Near East were males. It was father to son, on and on. Um, and so for some reason, uh, Matthew chose to include these women in this genealogy. And so we just want to consider that. Consider what that, what that means and what we have to learn from that. 2021, TBD. I mean, I've got some, some you know... Things I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about going through the book of Genesis uh, for the first few months in 2021, but we'll see kind of where things go in the coming uh, weeks and months before we nail that down for sure. But uh, today, this week, next week, 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, before we're done with the book. So, so thus far, we've looked at uh, 2 Timothy 1 through 3. Paul has exhorted uh, Timothy to you know, be faithful and to kind of uh, guard the gospel that was entrusted to him and to stand firm and to repent of sin and to encourage others to repent of sin and to trust God and to read the word of God. Last week, Jason preached on 2 Timothy 3, uh, verses 16 through 17, about how all of Scripture, all of the word of God is breathed out by God. It's inspired by God. It's inerrant. It's, it's trustworthy. It's, it's sufficient for, for you know, growing in godliness. It's authoritative. It is meant to kind of come to bear on our lives and to, to actually confront us. We looked at kind of the nature of the Word of God last week. This week, Paul builds on that foundation. So, so having looked at what the Word of God is and how it's intended to, to work in the lives of God's people, now in 2 Timothy 4, Paul then tells Timothy to uh, preach the Word. Like, since the Word is uh, good and sufficient and, and authoritative and inspired, now, because of that, I want you to preach it. I want you to proclaim it. I want you to tell people about the gospel. And so those are going to be the exhortations that we look at today in 2 Timothy 4, uh, verses 1 through, through 8. So let's read it, and then let's get started. Paul says, I charge you, Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by the, his appearing and by his kingdom, I charge you to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth, and they will wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry." 
For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bless our time this morning as we listen to your word and as we hear your word and as we consider how we might apply your word to our lives so that we can be more faithful uh, followers of Jesus. Please speak to us and please work in our hearts, and it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, chapter 4, verse 1. I, Paul, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ. So Paul's saying, This is the last chapter of the last book that I'm ever going to write. I'm about to die, and I have one final opportunity now to to communicate those things to you that are most important to me and to give you, Timothy, to give you a charge, to give you a command, to give you you an exhortation of how I want you to live after I am gone. But it's not just a, a personal uh, charge or a personal request. It's not, you know, like calling, calling, hey, pick me up, uh, pick me up something from the store on your way home. It's not a, a personal thing between, because it's, it's also public. It's also in view of or in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. So, so I have a public charge that I, Paul, am giving to you, Timothy, in view of God, the creator of heaven and earth, in view of Jesus, the second member of the Trinity who came to, to save us. My charge is given to you in full view of the sovereign Lord of the universe. And then uh, to communicate or to kind of uh, expound a little bit on who exactly Jesus is, Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead. So, so Jesus is uh, the, the, the sovereign king. There, there is nothing in all of creation that is not under the authority of, of King Jesus. Jesus is, is sovereign over, he is the judge over every, all of you, you're all alive, So Jesus is the king of your life. You owe everything to Jesus. You answer to him. You account to him. You give, you know, you, you report to Jesus. And so does everyone that's dead, everything that's not alive. Jesus is sovereign over everything, every person, place, thing, and all of creation. There's nothing that he is not the king of. So Paul says, Jesus is the king, and I am giving you this charge in view of Jesus, our king, and by his appearing and his, his kingdom. So, so here is why this charge uh, is so urgent. Here's why it matters as much as it does. Here's why you need to take it seriously and you shouldn't blow it off. Because Jesus, the king, who is the judge, he's coming back. He is going to come back, and he's going to establish his kingdom, and when he does, he's going to destroy his enemies, and he is going to take everyone who's been rebelling against him, and he's going to sentence them to eternity apart from him in hell. He's going to take everyone that has been reconciled to him, and he's going to welcome them into his presence for all of eternity. Jesus is coming. Jesus is the judge. Jesus is going to establish his kingdom, right? If those things weren't true, then this charge would have no 
urgency to it, right? If, if Jesus weren't coming back and Jesus wasn't going to establish his kingdom, if heaven weren't real and if hell weren't real, then none of this would matter. But heaven is real and hell is real. And eternity is a really long time. So this charge, this exhortation really matters. It is really urgent. Timothy, I really, it couldn't be more important. I want you to uh, preach the, the word. So open your Bible, right? The Bible that we just established is sufficient and authoritative and inspired. Open it, read it, listen to it, obey it. And then show it to other people. Read it to other people. Expose other people to the Bible. Expose the Bible to other people. This is why, this is why we uh, adhere to a practice called expositional preaching, Preaching that is expositional, preaching that exposes, right? It exposes people to the Bible and it exposes the Bible to people, right? We don't uh, manufacture sermons from, uh, you know, topics in the news or the latest uh, best-selling books in psychology, right? We, we preach through the Bible. We, we preach sermons that are distinctly crafted such that the point of the passage that we're preaching on is the point of the sermon that is preached from the, from the pulpit, right? And, here's what, and this is why it matters, right? It matters because of exactly what Jason preached on last week, right? The, the context, verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 16, if all Scripture's God-breathed and if all Scripture's profitable for teaching and rebu- rebuke, teaching reproof, correction, and training, right? And if all Scripture is, is intended to help us become complete and equipped for every good work, right? If, if that is true, so uh, if you take verses 1, verse 1, that Jesus is real, Jesus is the judge, Jesus is going to set up his kingdom, Jesus is going to crush his enemies, Jesus is going to save his people, right? And we all kind of have this, uh, this default mode of being an enemy of God, an enemy of Jesus, and not in Jesus's kingdom. And the only way that you can kind of uh, jump, that you can kind of cross the picket line from being an enemy of God to being a friend of God and being in God's kingdom, the only way that Jesus appearing and his establishing his kingdom is good news for you instead of terrible news is if you are reconciled to him. And the only way that you can be reconciled to him Chapter 3 is by the Word of God, the one thing that is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, that you might be complete and reconciled to God. Right? So, so if Jesus and his kingdom is real, and if the Bible is the only way that we can be saved, then it is of utmost importance, it is absolutely urgent that you, Timothy, proclaim the Bible. There's no other way that people can know who Jesus is, know that he came to us, know that he took our sin upon himself, know that he died on the cross, know that he was raised from the dead, know that we can trust him to be forgiven of our sins. There's no other way to know that except in the Bible. So if eternity really does hang in the balance, like verse 1 says it does, And if the Word of God is the only thing that can bring about change, like chapter 3 says it does, then there's one possible conclusion, and that is that you, Timothy, need to preach the Word. You need to be bold and proclaim the gospel to a world that desperately needs to hear it. Now, in case you might be thinking, that's all well and good, but I'm not a preacher, so this doesn't matter to me. I can just forward this on to Ben. 
And he, you know, this is, this is his department, so I'll let him handle any conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit on this task. It's not my job to preach, it's my job to listen to solid preaching. It's not, right, it's my job to go to a church and support a church where there is good preaching, but I'm not a preacher, so this isn't really uh, anything that's relevant for me. The problem with that thinking is that that's not how the New Testament understands the Christian life, and it's not how the New Testament understands exhortations and commands that are given in the rest of the New Testament, right? The the New Testament does not have this system where you've got this kind of bifurcation of pastors and preachers and clergy on the one hand and and lay people, regular people that don't have jobs in in vocational ministry. Seminary trained people over here, non-seminary trained people over here, people with religious responsibilities like preaching and discipling, people with regular responsibilities like, you know, jobs in the marketplace and in families. That kind of thinking is not in the New Testament. What the New Testament teaches is that there's, there's not a special class of priests or, or clergy. It teaches that every believer, by definition, is a priest. 1 Peter 2 says that all Christians are like living stones that are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Every Christian is a member of this priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God and Christ. Three times the book of Revelation says that God has made his people into a kingdom of priests. Every, if you're a Christian, if you believe in Jesus and you identify with him and you're a member of his kingdom, you're a member of his flock, you are a priest. And that has several implications. The first is, unlike some denominations would teach, uh, no human being has to go through any other human being in order to get access to God. You don't have to go to a priest and get a special uh, dispensation or a special blessing or have some sort of you know, uh, means of grace dispensed to you from a, a human being. There's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, and that's Jesus. Jesus is the one true high priest. And as a kingdom of, of you know, kind of un- under priests, as it were, we get to God by going through Jesus, not through a priest who then helps us get access to God through Jesus. That's one implication, is that we don't have to, we don't have to get, go through a human priest to get to God. But the other is, if we all are priests, like the New Testament teaches that we are, then any command in Scripture that you see directed towards someone in ministry, it has relevance for you. Because you are in ministry. You are a priest, as it were. So no Christian can look at chapter 4, verse 2, and say, not my job, not my responsibility, not my problem, because I'm not in, in ministry. Because every, every Christian is tasked, in one way or another, with preaching the gospel. This is why, in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says that God gave all of these people in all of these religious offices, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, God gave all of these different kind of specifically religious offices and, and roles so that they could equip the saints for the work of ministry and for the building up of the body of Christ. Paul doesn't say that God gave pastors and teachers for the task of doing ministry while members watched or tithed and supported it so that it could be done. He says, God gave pastors and teachers the task of equipping members, 
regular Christians so that they could go out and do ministry. So when Paul says, preach the word, uh, it's relevant for me, but not because I'm a preacher. It's relevant for me because I'm a Christian. And it's relevant for you if you are a Christian. And so, so one application for, for a preacher, right, would be to, to, like we said, preach the word. Don't preach your interests. Don't preach your, your hobby horse. Don't preach what you happen to care about, but preach the, the word of, of God. But there's also application for every Christian, even if you're not preaching a sermon every Sunday, right? For a Christian, uh, the, the command to preach the word uh, means just that. It means in your relationships, in your spheres of influence, right, among your family and your friends and your, your neighbors, when you are a Around people who will listen to you, uh, be faithful and be bold to proclaim the gospel to them. Don't be shy, don't be ashamed, don't be unwilling to point others to Christ. Don't, don't be paralyzed by what people will think of you if they know that you're a believer. Don't be afraid of conversations that, that you are, you know, that you think are awkward, right? Don't, don't, make a, don't make an idol out of the approval of others. Don't make an idol out of your own comfort and not having to feel awkward, right? Be willing as opportunities present themselves to talk to others about Christ, to open your Bible and use it to point other people to Christ. Be ready in season and out of season. So sometimes you'll feel like it, sometimes you don't, right? And I want you in either of those times to be ready, to be willing to open your Bible and point others to it, use it to encourage them, use it to correct them, use it to point them to Christ and help them grow in their relationship with Christ. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and and teaching. Right? So you should be willing to, when you see a fellow believer right, who, who uh, exhibits behavior that's commendable, you should be willing to open your Bible and say, that was, that was loving, that was generous, that was kind, and here's why generosity is good, and here's why kindness is good. I appreciate uh, you, you know, demonstrating God, like, or I, I appreciate you trusting God through this difficult circumstance, right? You should be ready and willing to open your Bible and use it to encourage, but also use it to confront. So that was impatient. That was selfish. That was, that was unbelief. That was, you were doing violence to that other person, and here's why those things are wrong. Here's why those things are sinful. Christians should be ready and willing and able to use their Bible to proclaim the words of God to other people around them. Which, of course, you can only do if you know your Bible, right? If you've, if you've studied your Bible, if you've spent unhurried time immersing yourself in right? if a, If a nation has to go to war, then the, the, the military's degree of readiness in wartime will be a direct result of their diligence in preparation during peacetime. Right, so how you prepare in peacetime will, will dictate how ready you are in wartime, right? So a good military is always preparing, always getting ready, so that if the call comes, if it's time to report, they're ready. Same thing with Christians knowing their, their Bible, right? Your ability to use the Bible, use the Word of God to point others to Christ and reprove them and rebuke them and exhort them will be a direct result of your diligence in studying the Bible, meditating on the Bible, praying through the Bible on your own, right? Reading it in the morning before you go to work, listening to it 
uh, on your commute, right? Reading, uh, the, reading the text that's going to be preached on Sunday during the week and thinking about it. Studying the text that was just preached on Sunday and reviewing it in your mind and considering it. Involving yourself in a small group where, where, where the group studies the Bible and discusses these, these things. You, you won't be ready to proclaim the gospel to a world that needs to hear it unless you're actively doing these things now to, to prepare for it. So preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort. And here's why. For the time, chapter, uh, verse 3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, right? So Timothy, I want you to preach the word. I want you to be ready. I want you to use the Bible to point others to Christ. And, and not just when you are well received, not just when people want to hear it, right? Not just when it is, it is really popular, right? There's, there's going to be, if, if it's not already on you, Timothy, certainly it is coming soon, a time when people will not want to hear the word of God. They won't want to hear what the Bible says. They won't want to repent of their sin. They won't want to acknowledge anyone's authority other than their own. They won't want to change their life to conform to some other standard. They won't want to admit that they're sinners at all. They won't want to have to trust uh, someone other than themselves to save them, right? Timothy, a time is coming where people are not going to want to hear God's word. They're not going to want to hear about how it calls them to repentance and faith, and they're going to walk away, and they will not endure it. And so I want you, Timothy, to be ready for that. I, I need you to be ready. If you, if you tell your friends that you love Jesus and that you want them to love Jesus and you show them how the Bible calls them to love and trust in Jesus, you need to be ready for the possibility that they'll say no, that they'll reject the gospel, they'll reject the Bible, and they will reject you. Right? Being, being a godly Christian who is faithful in gospel ministry is not for the faint of heart. Right? It's, not, it's not for people who are, who are needy and who desperately need the approval of those uh, around them. If you, if you want to be a godly Christian, faithful in gospel ministry, it starts by being content in God himself. God has to be enough for you. Everyone around you might desert you. Everyone around you uh, might want nothing to do with you. You have to be content in God, glad in God. Your joy has to be found in God so that if you are abandoned by your friends, you will be able to persevere because your contentment was not found in them. Your contentment was found in God. Now, just because uh, people may walk away from you, and just because uh, God calls us to be content in him so that we are prepared if people walk away from us doesn't mean that they always will. And it doesn't mean that, you know, it uh, doesn't mean that you should try to make them walk away from you, right? There, there are plenty of Christians who, like, for whatever reason, that's like a badge of honor. Rejection and persecution and hatred from, from the world is like a badge of honor. They feel like they're not being faithful in ministry unless people hate them. Right? If, they, if they share the gospel with someone and they're receptive or they're appreciative, they must not be doing it right. right? They, they love when people hate them. They love when people oppose them. These people are often kind of aggressive, kind of combative. 
They're argumentative. They like to win fights and arguments and debates all the time. And then when they do, they kind of convince themselves, look how faithful I'm being, right? Look how, look how everyone is walking away from me. That must be because I'm bold and, and faithful. Like, look how the, whatever, look how social media banned me because, uh, because of how much of a prophet I am, right? Everyone else is a sellout and I am faithful because I'm the only one. Everyone hates me more than they hate everyone else. So I must be the, the guy who's doing it right. Maybe, maybe that's true. Maybe not. Like maybe, maybe you're just being unkind and you need to repent of that. But either way, uh, you know, uh, people may or may not uh, walk away. They may uh, turn away and from listening to the truth and wondering. But, but so if you flip back up to verse 2, it, it, it's not uh, we shouldn't uh, proclaim the gospel in such a way that is actively trying to get people to hate us, trying to get people to walk away from us. Because Paul says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season with complete patience and teaching. So be kind and be patient and don't be aggressive and don't be uh, combative and don't be uh, a jerk, right? And don't, don't think of everything as a debate you have to win or an argument that you have to, to win. So verse 2 is really speaking to either side of the coin, right? Like to the person who is, uh, you know, excessively, uh, you know, errs on the side of being timid and fearful of, of other people and never proclaims the gospel. They read the first half and they say, I need to be faithful and bold in preaching the word. But to the guy who's, you know, aggressive and combative and, and, uh, un, and is not winsome, he needs to read the second half of verse 2 to say, do that with complete patience and complete teaching. When you encounter people in verse 3, you have to kind of strike the balance from verse 2. Where you're bold and firm on the one hand, but also gracious, kind, and winsome on, on the other hand. And when people, when people do walk away, right, when, they, when they do not endure sound teaching, verse 3, it's not, they're not just going to detach from uh, whoever, like, they're not going to attach from whoever was uh, giving them sound teaching and then just kind of become an unrestricted free agent. In all likelihood, they're probably going to glob on to someone else, something else. They're going to have itching ears and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. So if you're a, a preacher or a church, they'll, they'll leave your church, they'll go to another one, right? Uh, you know, they'll, they'll be caught in some sort of unrepentant sin and, and a church will confront them and will try to shepherd them to repentance and, and reconciliation and they don't want to do it. So they, they leave and they just go find another church that doesn't care about uh, obeying the Word of God, that doesn't care about practicing meaningful membership or, or careful shepherding, a church where they can just blend into the crowd, no one will ever know me, no one will ever uh, confront me. That's why, when we, that's why when you become a new member here, we ask about your previous church and if you were under discipline at your previous church and how did, how did, what, what were the circumstances surrounding uh, your leaving your previous uh, church to make sure that people aren't fleeing uh, shepherding or discipline that was good and, and godly at a, at a previous church. Because Paul says that's what people do. They won't endure sound teaching. Uh, if people confront them with the Bible and with the gospel, they will reject it. They'll go elsewhere. They will, they will actively look for, seek out, and find the affirmation that they desire. So that might happen, like I said, on a church level. Someone leaves, goes but it might happen on a personal level, right? You share the gospel with someone. You confront them. You... you uh, you know, show them uh, maybe uh, something that they need to change or repent of in their life, and they reject you, they cut you off, they don't want to be friends with you anymore. 
Maybe they'll find another friend that tells them what they want to hear. Maybe that other friend is a mutual friend of yours. Maybe, maybe uh, they slander you to that person. Maybe your reputation takes a, a hit. Like I said, be, being a faithful Christian and being faithful in gospel ministry is not for the faint of heart. You have to be ready for, and you have to be strong enough to, to persevere through people walking away from you turning away from you and, and finding, finding someone else that will you know, conform to what they would prefer to hear. And then in verse 5, Paul kind of bookends this exhortation. It's actually, uh, verse 5 is largely the same thing as we saw in verse 2. So verse 2 is preach the word, be ready, reprove, rebuke, exhort. Right? Verse 5 is uh, be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. It's, this, it's the same exhortation. So it's like be faithful in Christian ministry, be faithful, be bold to proclaim the gospel to others. And then kind of the, the middle, the inside, uh, as it were, is uh, people are going to hate you. People are going to despise you. People are going to reject you. People are going to be indifferent. People are going to walk away. They're going to oppose you. And then he circles back and reiterates his first point, which is, but even still, even in the midst of that, you be faithful. You don't be deterred. You don't be distracted. You don't be discouraged. You keep being faithful. Right? This, I mean, verses 2 through 5 are almost the sum total of the Christian life. Right? Be faithful as a Christian, even though people reject you, even though they ignore you. Be faithful as a, as a Christian. And then of, of particular interest in verse 5, though, is this last clause, to fulfill your ministry. It's reminiscent of, you know, Jesus talking with... Um, you know, Peter, after his resurrection, and Peter, like, looks over at John and is like, what about him? Like, what, what, how come, you know, you're telling me all these things that I need to do, Jesus, but what about John? And Jesus says, if I want John to have a different path to do something, if I want John to live until I return, what's that to you? You must follow me. You, Peter, you fulfill your ministry. Right? I mean, it's very easy to look at everyone else, see what they're doing, Right, which usually engenders any number of unhelpful responses. I look at someone who's, who's uh, doing some sort of ministry that I you know, feel unequipped to do. It's resignation, right? Wow, look, look at what they're doing. I could never do that, so I might as well not even try. Or self-exaltation. Wow, look at what they're doing. I'm outpacing them by a mile. Look how awesome I am. Or, or laziness, right? Uh, I might not be doing much, but I'm doing better than that guy and, and that guy, so I don't need to bother with striving and growing and, and, you know, and maturing as a believer. Paul says, don't bother with other people. Don't uh, obsess over or concern yourself with their ministry. You, Timothy, you fulfill your ministry. God is calling you to something, and I want you to be faithful to that. And so, so all of us as a Christian, we have a responsibility not to look at everyone else and size everyone else up. You know, we talked about this as, as elders, right? We're, we're, you know, the, we'd sit around the, as elders and we're thinking, all right, well, we want, to, you know, we want to mobilize other men in this church to preach, like Jason did last week. And the first conversation we had was to say, don't look at what Ben does every week and think, I have to do that. Like, if, you, if, you, if, you're, if, if someone other than me is going to preach up here on a given Sunday, the goal is not to do what Ben does. The goal is to fulfill your ministry, right? Or, or you know, same thing with, with members in this church, right? What is God calling you to do? Not what has God called other people to do, and can I, should I do that or not? What is God calling you to do? Joining a, 
small group, discipling another member, right? When we reopen the nursery, serving in the, in the nursery, there's some way that God is calling you to serve and love and minister to others. He's not calling you to size everyone else up and compare yourself to them. He's calling you to fulfill your ministry. So Timothy, be faithful. Even through rejection, you be faithful. And then in verse 6, it's a, it's kinda, he kind of takes a, a little bit of a turn here. Instead of kind of, you know, shifting from this charge, this exhortation that he's giving to Timothy, uh, instead to kind of personal reflection and considering his own life and, and where he's at. I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. In other words, I'm about to die, right? In the midst of this charge for you to be faithful, Paul stops and remembers that he is about to die. There's a, there's a Latin phrase that uh, has informed quite a bit of architecture, literature, art, philosophy, things like that throughout, the, throughout history called Memento Mori. You can Google it. There's a whole Wikipedia article on it. I read it. Um, Memento mori means remember, literally means remember death or remember that you are going to die. And you'll, again, you'll see this theme kind of pop up in, in art and things, things like that. Uh, doesn't, mean, um, doesn't mean be like some goth teenager, right, who's like obs- obsessed with, with death, black eyeliner, stuff like that. It doesn't, you've seen What About Bob, it doesn't mean like the kid from that movie, like, I am going to die. You are going to die, right? This, like, you know, guy named Sigmund who's obsessed with, with death, right? Memento Mori is not saying, like, be obsessed with death at all times, like, in a weird way. It's saying that we are all going to die, and until we acknowledge that reality and, and wrestle with it and come to grips with it and, and embrace it, we will not be living our lives to the fullest. Remembering death, acknowledging it, and staring it right in the face is the way that we can ensure that we will live our lives right here, right now, to the fullest. Socrates said, the chief end of philosophy is to practice for dying and, and death. There's something about, something about death, something about having uh, death, having our own death, eventually as, eventual as it may be, in our field of vision that kind of gives us a sense of urgency or, you know, kind of helps us to understand or appreciate. My wife and I just had a baby. And, and one thing that happens when you have a baby is everyone gives you a lot of advice. And, and I love it. I'm, I'm not, you know, we don't always listen to all the advice, but we, we welcome it. So don't, don't feel bad like you can't give advice. But people give a lot of advice when you have a baby. One of the pieces of advice that someone gave us that I thought was interesting, I'd meditated on it for a while, was the, the days go by slow, but the years go by fast. Now, that was, that was pretty profound. I wrote that down, you know. Tell it to someone else, act like I made it up. Um, the days go by slow, the years... So I'm, I'm thinking, well, what does that mean? That means, like, so much of parenting is hard work, and it's laborious, and it's tedious, and the kid's crying, and, you know, there's just a lot of hard work, and it, sometimes it feels like the days never end, and you just want the kid to be quiet, and he's crying, and it's like, will this day... The days go by slow, but the years go by fast, meaning that, like cherish it, like cherish this, like he'll never be this small ever again, so cherish it and enjoy it, even if it's hard, cherish it and enjoy it, because once it's gone, you can never uh, get it, it back, right, which is good advice, but the more I thought about it, 
I'm realizing that uh, it, what, what they're saying is that this brief window, this brief season that you're in, when your kid is this age, it's going to come to an end. Sooner rather than later, it's going to come to an end, so make the most of it while you can. Remember the, the terminus, remember the end, remember that it's going to stop, and that will make you cherish it more and enjoy it more and like lean in and be more faithful in the midst of it. One writer says, your life's expiration date is uncertain, but your life definitely will come to an end one day. Could be 50 years from now or it could be tomorrow. The practice of remembering that you will die or reflecting like Marcus Aurelius did that you could leave life right now can make you more grateful for each additional day and each additional moment that you get. Remember that you're going to die so that you can make the most of your life now while you can. So that you can practice the spiritual disciplines now while you can, so that you can live for God now while you can, love your neighbor, invest in eternity now while you can, because you can't do it forever. That's a big part of what, that, you know, that's a big part of what, what our worship services are all designed around, to prepare you for, for death. One worship uh, professor of a seminary says, singing in our local church gatherings should be for the purpose of preparing us for our encounter with death. Your life as a Christian, as a church member, is one long process of preparing for death. And Paul was right on the precipice of his own death. He, he was right there. And this kind of memento mori, this like remember that you are going to die, is prompting him to do two things in verse 7 and 8, respectively. To, to, to look back in verse 7 and to look forward in verse 8. I've I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. Right? Remember your death. Remember that when you die, you are going to look back on your life. You're going to survey the entirety of your life. And you want to be living now in such a way that you can look back on your life without regret. You want to live now so that when the moment comes and you're right, you're you're either going to look back on your life with contentment and satisfaction and gladness because you lived the life you wanted to live, or you're going to look back on your life with regret because you failed to or refused to. Right? You're going to wish that you made different choices. You're going to think of all these things that you did that you wished you didn't do, or all these things that you didn't do that you wish that you did do. Right? At the end of your life, you're, you're either going to look back with satisfaction or regret. One of those two responses is inevitable. Paul says, I, Paul looks back with satisfaction. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. Maybe you say that. Or maybe you say, I wasted my life. I wasted it. And if I could have it all back, I would do it vastly differently than I did. Remembering your death can help you to live better now. But it's not just looking back. 
It's not just looking back and, and wanting to be sure that I can look back on my life without regrets. It's also looking forward. Henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown uh, of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but everyone else who has loved his appearing. So when, when you die, right, re- reflecting on death, this memento mori, remembering that you will die, should also cause you to look forward past your death into your eternal state that you're going to experience. When you die, death is not the end. Contrary to what other religions are saying, you don't die and then just kind of uh, pass off into non-existence. You don't die and get reincarnated. You don't, you don't die and then you know, your loved ones sprinkle your ashes onto the seventh fairway and you just kind of become one with your, you know, play, your spirit plays golf forever. Like none of that happens when you, when you die. When you die, you stand before God. He created you. You owe everything to him. You are accountable to him. And you have to give an account for how you lived, what you believed, how you responded to his glory. According to Matthew 25... You are going to hear one of two things when you die and stand before God. You'll either hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful. Come, join me, enter into the rest of your master, the joy of your master. Or you'll hear, depart from me into the eternal fire that was prepared for the devil and his angels. I never knew you. Every person who was created by God, in the image of God, accountable to God, is going to hear one of those two things when they die and stand before God. And how you live your life right now, what decisions you make right now, is going to inform what you hear from Jesus when you stand before him. Trust him and obey him and walk with him, and Jesus will welcome you into his presence. He will present you with a crown of righteousness. Rebel against him, reject him, and deny him, and Jesus will consign you to an eternity apart from himself under his wrath. Paul is on the the precipice of death. He's looking forward to the moment when he's going to die, and he's confident based on how he lived his life, based on the decisions that he made, based on how he proclaimed the gospel, that Jesus is going to commend him and present him with eternal rewards. You are going to die When you do, you're going to look back and either experience satisfaction or regret, and you're going to look forward, and you're either going to hear commendation from Jesus, or you're going to experience condemnation from Jesus. And Paul is saying, live your life in such a way now that Jesus will commend you and welcome you into his presence to enjoy him forever. Preach the word, be bold, be faithful, be winsome, right? Even when people are indifferent, even when people walk away, even when they reject you, even when they oppose you. Preach the word, preach the gospel, fulfill your ministry because you're going to die. Remember your death, anticipate your death, prepare for your death, and live in such a way now that when you die, you can look back without regret and so that you can look forward and Jesus will receive you and commend you and welcome you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the sufficiency of your word. We thank you that we can open our Bibles and and read them and hear from you as you speak to us. And we pray, Lord, that we could be faithful. 
We pray that we could uh, read and love our Bibles and proclaim the gospel to the, the world that needs to hear it. We pray that we could prepare for death by repenting of our sin and trusting in you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.